Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Campsite Media. I was like in a department store or something and uh, this this woman recognized my voice. Glenn Crooks is a broadcaster, podcaster, and a soccer coach. So this wasn't the first time someone recognized him over the years. Another time, it's the parent of one of the players he coaches. And what he said surprised him. Your dad comes up to me and said, uh, Hey, you know, you're a legend in Randolph. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I was a student at Randolph High School when you did that broadcast. The kick is up, and the kick is good! Randolph wins! And then I learned later that people were getting VHS copies for Christmas. <laughs> it went viral. Glenn was an announcer for one of the broadcasts of the Montclair-Randolph game. And his amazing call even made it to the local news. Everyone was talking about it and the shocking final seconds. It was like a Hollywood script. Underdog team clinches the championship with one second left thanks to an impossible 37-yard field goal. They make history setting a new state record in honor of their late, great coach, John Bauer Sr. Once the chaos and celebrations calmed down a bit, Glenn had a chance to interview Randolph's quarterback, Mike Groh, about his unbelievable kick, the other thing people would be talking about for decades. It definitely looked like all hope was lost, and um, we just had to keep faith in ourselves and trust in the Lord that he was going to come through, and uh, I believe Mr. Bauer is smiling upon us today. In an interview with The Daily Record, Coach John Bauer Jr. said he believed his dad was with them for one final game. The last second on the clock, the wind behind Mike's kick, he was certain that was Bauer Sr. Even Coach Davies admitted that it seemed like a miracle, like something beyond luck was on their side. He told the Daily Record, you hate to say that the Lord is involved in football decisions, but... The game would become known as the miracle at Montclair. But for the Mounties, it was a nightmare they couldn't wrap their heads around. They'd watched their dreams get crushed in the blink of an eye. And it wasn't just that they had lost. They were totally and completely confused by how they lost. The scoreboard clock had gone to zero. Their fans had rushed the field in celebration. But then, the officials decided the game was not over. None of it made any sense. I couldn't find any interviews with Montclair players after the game. 
which could be because they were quickly peeled off the ground and whisked away into the field house. Here's Gary Sistrunk. I remember when we were in the locker room, crying, sobbing, head hung low. It didn't feel like we lost. It felt like we were cheated. Oh, wow. It just... It, it, it hurt. It just it hurt so bad. It just felt like everything that I had, all the all the commitment that I put into something was left right there with my back to that field goal. It's like, well, why? <laughs> why did I even bother? While the boys were mourning, Gary's dad, Pony, was outraged. He'd been watching them play and win since they could barely fit their shoulder pads. These were his boys, his family. Their loss was his loss. Their pain was his pain. And he had to say something. He had to do something. I went home with big feelings about an injustice I felt. They didn't lose. I will never admit they lost. They got, I guess in the old days, like when I was a kid, I'd say shafted. From Campside Media, Entertainment One, and NJ Advanced Media, This is Lights Out. I'm Matt Stanmeyer, and this is Episode 5, The Injustice. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. A game of uh, so many moments. Maybe the last play of this game. Six seconds remain. I wanted everybody to know what my feelings were because I knew there were so many others that felt the same. That's why I wrote that article I sent to the paper. After the game, Pony went home and started writing and writing and writing. When he was done, he slipped the letter into an envelope and addressed it to the Montclair Times. And it ended up being published. He has a framed copy of it in his home office. Pony wrote about how the Mounties had to be picked up off the field sapped of strength both physically and mentally. He described how they cried tears of anguish and had a lack of desire to face their teammates when school resumed. The letter has the tone of a bereft parent searching for answers. He asks, is that just another lesson in life? You tell me. The overwhelming consensus among Montclair fans was that officials simply put too much time back on the clock at the end of the game, and everyone was trying to figure out who was responsible and who should be held accountable for the harm done to their kids, but also to loyal fans, like Mike Mafucci. I was a grown man at the time. It was hard for me to grip how something like that could happen. You take a kid 16 years old, how do you explain that to him? I think he did a lot of damage. Listen, there's guys that never came back to the field. Never came back to the field again. Everybody's going to take it to their grave. But at the time, if game officials messed up, There was really no recourse for that sort of thing. You pretty much had to accept the cards you were dealt, right or wrong. I've spent months analyzing and scrutinizing the final moments of the game, trying to piece it all together. And the key to understanding what really happened begins with the third down on Montclair's final possession. Watching the DVD was sort of like watching any sporting event or other world event on replay 
where you know everything is looking great right now, but you know the boat's going to hit the iceberg. This is Paul Spahala, one of the announcers who covered the game live. He rewatched the video the night before we spoke, and he talked me through what he remembered about the last few plays of the game. To recap... Third down begins with 42 seconds on the clock. Lamont Ponton scrambles backwards an extra few yards than a typical kneel down, eating up a few extra milliseconds. He then kneels on the ball. Randolph is out of timeouts, so they can't stop the clock, and it keeps running down. The officials then scramble to pick up the ball, check the ball placement from the sideline officials, and then spot it for fourth down. Once they do, an official on the field signals the ready-for-play call, and fourth down begins. We had thought that the ready for play was done at 29 seconds. Okay, so 29 seconds going into fourth down. The play clock is 25 seconds. So once the officials signal ready to play, Montclair can use up all 25 seconds before they have to do anything. But remember, the coaches and announcers are expecting the refs to signal a delay of game penalty once the play clock expires. As the ball is ready for play. Okay, there's the ready for play with four seconds it should be. Four seconds. The ready for play was at 29. So that's when the clock should stop. 25 seconds later would have meant four seconds to go. That's when we think the delay of game should have been enforced. So a few seconds before the clock runs out, it appears the officials tried to signal a delay of game penalty as expected. An official blows the whistle but doesn't throw a flag which would have been a signal to the timekeeper in the booth that the clock should be stopped. In the broadcast footage, you can't see the clock, so it's hard to tell exactly when this happens. But Glenn Crooks, who we heard from before, and his co-anchor say in the video that it's at five seconds. And the official stopped the clock with five seconds left. The timekeeper, who's sitting in the press box, is supposed to stop the clock. But you know what happens next. For whatever reason, the clock operator ran the clock down to zero when he should have stopped it for a delay of game. Almost simultaneously, the Montclair fans rush onto the field and then have to be cleared off, which just adds to the confusion. Now, there hadn't been any issues with the clock all game, but Paul has a theory about why there was suddenly misalignment at the most crucial moment. The Montclair fans, they stormed their field. There must have been a thousand fans, mostly students, on the field. And so it's possible that the clock operator, in the confusion, couldn't see the referee who probably blew the play dead for a delay of game. And because of that, he runs the clock to zero. The fans run on the field. There's the mass confusion. So they clear the field, and the refs deliberate. And then, for whatever reason, seven seconds are put on the clock seven instead of four. So as far as I can tell, two mistakes seem to have occurred at the end of the game. One, the officials never threw a delay of game flag on fourth down, which would have presumably stopped the clock on the scoreboard. And two, and this is the big one, the officials added three extra seconds back on the game clock when play resumed. All of this has been debated in numerous articles over the years but multiple journalists from various outlets agree that there should have been four seconds left. Paul says it's possible that the refs came up with seven if fourth down somehow started a few seconds earlier than 29 seconds. Did we miss a signal and it was actually 
made ready for play at 33 seconds, again, that's possible. Do you think that it should have been four? I'm going to have to go with what the officials on the field said. And part of that being that there didn't seem to be very much disagreement from the Montclair side as to, hey, let's talk this over. Why is it seven instead of four? It seemed that the Montclair coaches, and, and we had microphones on the sideline also, so you could hear them occasionally during the broadcast. There didn't seem to be any kind of comment from their side that said, hey, let's let's take a moment to think about what the timing on the clock should be. Head official Joe Fisher later admitted to the Montclair Times that a flag should have been thrown. He also said that both coaches knew there were seven seconds left. I should note here that Fisher died in 2017, so I never got the chance to question him directly about those crucial final decisions. But in a 10-year anniversary story about the game, he stood by his calls. He told the Star-Ledger, our objective at that time was to get it right, and that's what we thought we did. But in the Times, Coach Davies said he was told there were four seconds left. And that's significant, because it influenced his choice to have Lamont punt instead of running the ball. Davy said, We felt we had it timed out so that there would not be any time remaining for Randolph to get off another play when they got the ball back. But instead, Randolph receives the ball when Billy Williams catches Lamont's punt, and the clock is stopped miraculously with exactly one second left, giving Randolph a chance to kick the game-winning field goal that would go viral and haunt Montclair for years. I've rewound that, you know, the punt, you know, the time they had left there, the, the, the snapper's hands to the time that Ponton kicked the ball to the time that it was in the air to the so-called fair catch that was made and to me the time would expired and I I rewind 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 so many times and I you know tried to time it myself and it always came out that that clock was dead as many times as I watched that ending part of the game it's like I just, I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand. Here's Mike Mafucci again. Now, when they received the kick, it was one second on the clock. That was pretty unique that we was able to maneuver that from no time to three seconds to five seconds to seven seconds to make sure there was one second back on the clock. I mean, there is no way anyone's going to tell me other than Jesus Christ himself, because I am a Catholic, he would be the only person that could come down and say, tell me, Mike, it wasn't that way. Because I was there. And what happened was very obvious. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a bad call. You know what I mean? It wasn't, they, they would have got confused. They were screwed up. Uh, it was done to give them another shot to win the game. Some diehard Montclair fans like Mike believe there's only one explanation. The officials wanted Montclair to lose. I wasn't able to find any evidence that this is true. The bottom line is that the decisions by the officials had an undeniable impact on the game, which didn't seem fair to either team. Nearly everyone I've talked to has nothing but respect for the Rams, but some people feel like the controversy undermines their victory. In post-game interviews, Coach Davies was usually a good sport even after major losses, and he was almost always optimistic about the future. But this time, he wasn't saying stuff like, it's just a game, or there's always next year. Davies told the Montclair Times 
In over 40 years of football, I've never seen anything like what happened in the final second Saturday. This one is going to take a long time to get over, if you can ever get over a loss like this one. Some of the players don't remember him saying much after the game, but Davies' words did have a lasting impact on Gary. I remember Coach telling us to keep our heads up. Oh, excuse me. Uh, give me a second. Yeah, Coach telling us to to hold our heads high because we were champions. And we'd always be champions. He told us that the game was the greatest game that he's coached, the greatest team that he's coached. But, I mean, you hear it, but you, you, you're, still, you're still feeling that, that, that loss. And then it seemed like Davies vanished. And that was it. Boom, gone. It was really kind of a fade to black. I was always told Jack didn't want to talk about the game, and I never saw him again. And it was like, maybe it changed his life. Maybe he felt like, you know, I'll never be the same, and I can't show my face in Montclair. It was kind of like he just dropped off the face of the earth, you know? It's like, ah, <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. Like, what, what, what I think about it, you know, it's like, I know he felt probably worse than we felt, you know, because he was our leader. And maybe to him it felt like, like he let us down. It's really hard to put your finger on it. Then a month and a half after the game, there was a stunning announcement. Davies resigned after more than 30 years of coaching. He was almost 60 years old. Wade Amadeo, the school security guard, went to go see Davies during lunch the Monday after the game. They were close, so he went to check on his friend and show his support. He found Davies slouched in his seat. His face was red and he told Wade he hadn't slept all weekend. Wade could see the pain in his eyes. This man is devastated because he wanted to win that game for the kids, for the school, for himself, worse than anybody. And basically it ended just in the craziest way that he'd ever think of, basically. He said, you know, I'm going to resign. You'd be the first to tell him. But, you know, I said, well, I respect what you've done here. I didn't want to probe too much. I just listened. I spoke to a bunch of Davies' former players. None remembered him telling the team he was resigning or even seeing him again. And they couldn't help but wonder, why? They'd had a near-perfect season. They had played a hell of a game and they had a boatload of talent returning in 1991. So why wouldn't he want to stick around for another season and correct the record? Dyro Patterson also found this odd. No one wants to talk about it, why? Because guilt is on the line somewhere. Someone's guilty of something. And that's my opinion. More after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. After Davies quietly disappeared following the Randolph game, people were still talking. A lot. Because some people were baffled by the decisions Davies and his coaches made at the end of the game. They didn't understand why he didn't just run the ball and try to get a game-ending first down. Or why they seemed to tell Lamont Ponton to scramble backwards before kneeling on the ball losing precious yards, and Dairo couldn't help but entertain some of it. To him, it seemed like Davies wanted to lose. Like, I don't even know I should even talk about it. Like, I heard, like, mafia-type stuff. Like, the mafia had their hand in it, and they wanted this person to win and this person, and Davis was aware of it, and that's why he was calling certain plays. When I first heard Dairo say this, it sounded ridiculous. The idea of the mafia being involved in a high school football game, it just sounds crazy. And to suggest Davies threw the game? Come on, he's a guidance counselor. What would he even have to gain? But since so many people believed that something corrupt happened, I decided to do my due diligence and look into it. And you can kind of understand where Dyro's coming from. Because he's not making up mafia involvement in high school sports. After all, this is New Jersey we're talking about. So here's what I found. Just a couple years after the game, prosecutors charged three students from a nearby high school with illegal gambling, kidnapping, and theft by extortion. The students were supposedly working with a New York, New Jersey crime family. And then there were also the high school betting rings. Police busted three of them in towns right around Montclair in the early 90s. And in each case, officers charged or suspected that organized crime families were involved. So... I was not completely off base. But let me be clear. I didn't find any evidence of Davies or anyone from Montclair working with the mob. But Dyro thinks it's possible anyway. To tell you the truth, when I first heard it, I didn't believe it. Because I was like, ah, you know, it's football. You know what I'm doing now. But as I got older and started putting pieces together and being on the field and, and seeing how we called other games, like as as, as coaches to players and how we called that game. It was a completely different. Like, why was it so different? You know what I mean? Why, why didn't we keep to the same game plan that we did when we were winning? Why would we change it now? Davies did speak on this in an interview after the game. He said he decided not to run the ball on the final possession because the Mounties had fumbled earlier and he didn't want to risk another. But one source told me he second-guessed some of his choices later on. Back in 2019, when I originally reported on this story for the Star-Ledger and NJ.com, I spent months trying to interview Coach Davies' family members. He died the previous year, and I wanted to know truly how the game affected him. But my messages weren't returned. So in August of that year, I hopped in my car and drove 30 minutes to a house in Morris County. I came searching for answers, and the one person left who might be able to provide them, Antoinette Davies, Coach Davies' widow, I was hesitant to knock on her door and bother a woman in her 80s. But if I could see her face to face, maybe she would share the truth about her husband and how the game impacted his life. I took a deep breath and rang the doorbell. In seconds, 
an elderly man with silver hair opened the door. He introduced himself as Jack Windoff, Antoinette's brother. I told him I was looking for his sister and that I wanted to ask about her late husband and the Randolph game. As we started talking, another woman in the house said she would go get Antoinette. Did you did, did you see it affect her or her husband in some way after that? Yeah, well, I mean, they were bitter about it. So yeah. I would say that much just because, you know, it just didn't end the way a game should have ended. So. Right. And you said Jack didn't like to talk about it? He, he really didn't. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, it was over and done with, and he said, you know, let's just let it lie. So you're right that it had a lasting impact on a lot of people. Right, right. Well, what's interesting as I started researching the game was, was that, you know, Jack never coached again. Um, yeah, which was which was interesting. Do you know why he, he retired? Well, I think he was planning on retiring. Yeah, so, uh, he just reached an age, and I think his other duties at at Montclair uh, were were not rewarding. Mm-hmm. He was a, like a guidance counselor, and uh, just got a lot of heat from some of the parents there. Right, right. You know about that part of the job. You know, the kid didn't get into Harvard type of thing. Right, I, right. I had enough of this. <laughs> Suddenly, the woman reappeared with a message. Mrs. Davies has no comment. Oh, really? And it's over, and she doesn't want to discuss it. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Oh, really? And they lost. It's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, that's why... What is going on? No, I know. It just left such a bad taste in so many people's mouths. Yeah, yeah. Jack Windoff and I spoke for a few more minutes, and then I left. I didn't have the answers I'd been hoping for, but this much is clear. Long after his coaching days, Davies remained a beloved figure in Butler, where he coached for years before Montclair. In 2011, dozens of his former players celebrated their old coach in a ceremony at the school. They installed a plaque honoring him next to the refreshment stand in the football stadium, and they placed a brick dedicated to him in the Butler Athletic Walk of Fame. One alum even created a tribute devoted to his legacy on Facebook. Davies and his wife relocated to Florida sometime in the early 2000s, but moved back to New Jersey around 2017, when Davies needed to live in a nursing home. Windolph told me he had lots of his former players visit him, mostly ones from Butler. He died from natural causes in January 2018, at age 86. The top line of his obituary describes him, fittingly, as an NJ high school football coach. As Davies faded into the background in the weeks and months after the Randolph game, the Mounties players would get tons of accolades. The team finished ranked number two in New Jersey. They had nine players make first-team All-League, and five players were named first-team All-County, including Lamont. Dyro remembered Lamont earning some other recognition for being one of the top players in the area. He told me a limo even picked up Lamont from school and took him to a banquet. But the awards couldn't blunt the feeling that the team had failed that they had let everyone down. Some of the seniors referenced the game in their yearbook quote, their parting words to their classmates. One player wrote, we had it, but it was taken away. Do it right next year. You know what's up. But a lot of the rest of the team were juniors going into their senior year. They had a ton of terrific players coming back in 1991. Everybody assumed the team would be in the championship mix again and that they would have a shot at redemption including Gary and Dyro. They were already plotting their revenge. Okay, we lost, then we're gonna lose pot, but we still got all the key players. 
you know, we lose some alignment, but we're going to make it happen. Davies had recommended assistant coach Ed Labita as his successor, but the school went in a different direction. So when we came back senior year, uh, hey guys, you got a new coach, Rivers. Who? What do you mean? What's, what's going on? That's right. A new coach. And his name was Len Rivers. Rivers was an esteemed coach in his own right. He started coaching in 1957 and later won three state titles in the 80s at Franklin High School. By the time he was hired by Montclair, he had already been inducted into the New Jersey Scholastic Coaches Association Hall of Fame. But for some players, he might as well have been from Mars. He also had no ties to Montclair. If Jack Davies had been considered an outsider, what did that make Rivers? And there were some immediate red flags. Matt Bellis, who was now vying for the starting quarterback job, remembers how drastic the changes were under the new coach. You knew it was going to be a disaster the first meeting we had, and he comes in and starts criticizing Montclair's weight room. This is the best team in the state? Your weight room's a joke. And we're like, who are you, dude? (laughs) Hello? So they got off on the wrong foot. Then to add insult to injury, Pat Cordo, the team's beloved defensive coordinator, doesn't return either. Coach Rivers came with his own assortment of, let's just say, odd coaches. Matt remembers one in particular. He was like 90 years old, this guy, right? His teeth were falling out. He was like, it's such a sweet old man, but like didn't know our names. He, he thought my name was, was Lou. He's calling me Lou. And I didn't correct him because I'm like, the guy's like 95 years old. Like, <laughs> yeah. what am I going to do? And that's the kind of people Lenny Rivers is bringing around. Dyra remembers another assistant coach who was always flashing money around, which was strange and kind of cool. He remembers thinking maybe being a high school football coach wasn't such a bad gig. But they'd later find out why he had so much cash. One of the guys he brings in is this heading who gets busted for selling cocaine to kids at his school and, like, isn't around either maybe after our season uh, or during the season. Then Coach Rivers changed up the way the team did everything. For example... He had a lot of players playing both sides of the ball. And Matt got the QB spot, but Rivers was running plays he wasn't familiar with. We're not going to have a snap count. You're just going to say go. Huh? These are high school kids. You don't want to get someone jumping offside? And it was like one weird decision after another. And the Mounties, still fragile from the Randolph loss, just fell apart. The differences from one year to the next were so staggering that people were convinced it wasn't a coincidence. It seemed like the misfortune from the Randolph game was lingering. For example, the team played Bloomfield again in 1991. The Bengals were Montclair's arch rival just one town over. And the year before, they destroyed Bloomfield. Easily. This year, somehow the opposite happened. The Mounties lost 12 to nothing. There's a picture of Dyro from that game. He's on the sidelines looking totally dejected. There's a picture of me who played Bloomfield. And I was sitting on my helmet. And I was thinking of the game. Do you remember what you were thinking when you were sitting on that helmet? It was a big and small. It was all a dream. You know, it was like, what's going on? It's like, is this really, really happening? Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're better than this. You know, so you, so you still have this confidence that you're a great elite team. But teams are beating you easily 42 to 12. So it was it was my senior year. So now I'm just playing like a wild assassin. I'm not even playing like a, 
uh, as the game should be played, and that's in your mind. It's not a physical game, it's a mental game. You can't go from dominating to be dominated. Disaster ensued. With Lenny, it was like the, the rats were jumping off the ship. They're like, I'm out of here, man. It's, it's all top down. And lots of talented players quit the team. Even Gary couldn't deal with the changes. Gary was a lifelong football player, a kid who lived for Saturdays on the gridiron. And then his love for the game was just gone. He told me he didn't finish his senior season. It just took his toll on me. I mean, because, you know, I wasn't good at very many things, but football was one of them. You know, and it's like it just got taken away. You know, that chance that I could have had to use that, it, it made me lose my, my feel, my passion for it. Lots of other guys threatened to quit the team. I, at one point during that season, wanted to leave and was on my way out the field house, fully intending on quitting when um, Coach Rob, as he was known, uh, stopped me. He knew what was going on. He knew I was pissed off at Lenny Rivers, and he, he's like, I know what you're thinking, but I just want you to remember Montclair pride. And this is not about him. It's about Montclair. And I want you to stay and fight for that. Matt did end up staying. Being quarterback was his dream, and he'd worked hard for years to earn the spot. But this was so far from anything he'd ever hoped for. I mean, it started with the bad hire, and it became progressively worse. And it was almost like the lowercase t trauma of Randolph was, was being lived out in slow motion now, right? It was like, we lost the big game, half our team graduates. Yes, we still have talent, though. And now we got a coach we don't like, guys are quitting, we're losing, and it's getting worse. And it was, it was incredibly disappointing because I had high expectations for it. The Mounties finished with a 4-5 and five record under Rivers, Montclair's first losing season in 16 years. They scored 61 points the entire season, and they were held scoreless four times. The next year was even worse. They only won three games. That marked the fewest wins in Montclair since 1939. People couldn't believe how far the Mounties had fallen. And many fans and players and coaches couldn't help but think it was somehow related to Randolph. The trauma from that game was so deep, so impactful, it seemed to infect the program for years to come. Wade said Rivers had a hard time taking heat from the fence monglers. He would call in sick every single Monday. I'd look the absentee list we used to have posted alphabetically, right? I'd look every Monday and Lenny Rivers did. Goes by the alphabet to bond there, L Rivers out. He couldn't handle it. He told people, I can't take your pressure here. Should have known that when you got the job, sir. I warned you of this. He couldn't take it. I tried calling Rivers to get his perspective, but I wasn't able to reach him. During that miserable Bloomfield game, the team is faced with another undeniable sign that the world as they knew it is completely upside down. We're playing Bloomfield under the lights. Friday night lights, right? And I'm running out of the tunnel at Bloomfield, and there's Lamont, like along the side where all the fans are, you know? And I don't even remember him cheering. Like, he's just standing there. And it was surreal. Because it was like, here's someone I looked up to the whole time I'd been playing at Montclair, and now he's looking at me. And it was just like, what happened? We had a, a coach, um, he used to be like, when the sun rises in Montclair, your ass better not be here. I want you to be in college. I want you to be somewhere else. When the sun rises on your ass after you graduated, I don't want you to be here. 
and Lamont was there. And it just gave me this sickening feeling like, he shouldn't be here. So many schools could use his talents, why is he here? Next time on Lights Out. Oh, hi, is this where the Pontons live? No. Oh, they, no? Lamont, or Derek, no? I didn't catch your name, your first name? M-A-R-Y-A-N-N. Two words? Yeah. Marianne Ponton. It seems like it was a Cinderella type of story. At the end of the game, I, I said on TV3 that I was trying to ease a little bit of his pain. I believe it really changed my brother's life. Lights Out is a production of Campside Media and Entertainment One in association with NJ Advanced Media and XTR. This series was reported and hosted by me, Matt Stanmeyer. Naomi Brauner is the senior producer, and Kim Baikuma is the associate producer. Additional production support from Natalia Winkleman and Campside senior producer, Lindsay Kilbride. Our story editor and executive producer is Emily Martinez. Mixing, sound design, and original music by Ewan Leitremuen. Additional engineering from Blake Rook. This series was fact-checked by Lauren Vespoli and Matt Giles. Special thanks to Robert Fox, Chris Kelly, Steve Politti, Anthony Pacillo, Jeff McGrath, and Paul Spahala. A special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, and Destiny Dingle. Our executive producers are Lee Eisenberg from A Piece of Work, Justin Lacob from XTR, and from Campside Media, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Lights Out, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.